welcome to DigiDay's History of AdTech, a special four-part series from the DigiDay podcast examining the disruption in the digital media space from the 1990s to the current day. My name is Ronan Shields, and I work here on the reporting desk at DigiDay. My name is Seb Joseph, and I'm the senior news editor here at DigiDay. In this series, we're diving into the emergence of the ad tech industry, the intricate web of technologies that powered advertising shift from analog to digital. It all kicked off in the mid-1990s when the number of US internet users jumped from 5 to 12 million. And in 1994, there were about 10,000 sites on the World Wide Web. And legend has it, in October 1994, a graphic displaying a slim black box with multicolored letters asked visitors to the website hotwired.com, have you ever clicked your mouse right here? That was the first ever online display ad. This is for US telco AT&T. And this tiny event sparked a wave of innovation from entrepreneurs and dollar signs in the eyes of investors. In 1996, the ad tech company DoubleClick was founded, and this helped fuel the dot-com boom. But hey, what goes up must come down, right? And cue the dot-com crash. And during this time, the ad tech world also took a hit. Companies faced their first major reality check, with some soaring through the chaos, while others were never heard from again. Through this roller coaster ride, the ad tech world just kept growing and getting even more and more complex. Join us as we uncover the GC stories behind the big players, groundbreaking innovations, and game-changing shifts that shape this ever-evolving ad tech world. Get ready for a deep dive into this thrilling ecosystem. Our first guest is someone who was right in the thick of all of this, so much so that we could easily dedicate a four-part series just to cover their journey during this pivotal period. I'm talking about Brian O'Kelly. Now, Brian's resume speaks volumes. He was the former CTO of Right Media, where he's credited with inventing the very first online ad exchange. After that, he co-founded the NetApp Nexus. In short, he's a heavyweight in this field, and we're thrilled to have him join us. Hey, thanks for having me. There's a lot of people that refer to you as the godfather of ad tech, and um, you have quite a few claims on some of your achievements and the things that you've indeed invented in this space. Can you just go through some of, uh, just, you know, what are some of your major landmark achievements been? Uh, a lot of people credit with you with uh, the invention of the ad exchange. Can you just talk us through some of those? Yeah, so in 2003, when I joined Right Media as the sort of founding CTO, um, the, the challenge we were all facing was basically how do we figure out, you know, the most effective ad to serve to the, the human on the other end of the browser. And there was a basically a daisy chain that people were running. You know, you'd, you'd choose the highest paid ad network and then the next highest paid, the next highest paid. And at some point, if you were lucky, someone would actually decide to buy the ad. And my realization was in trying to run an ad network that if we had a really high paying advertiser or we really knew that this particular human was going to convert, was going to actually buy something. We had to convince someone at the at the publisher to put us higher in the chain. And so everyone was kind of fighting to be first. Uh, but the information going back to the publisher was, was very slow. Like at the end of the month, you'd see how big your check was, and you might allocate people based on that. But that makes no sense from a yield perspective. So I had the idea, like, why don't we hold an auction? Like, why can't we just get everybody at once to tell us what they're willing to pay, and then we'll choose the highest bidder? And back in 2003, 2004, that was more or less technically impossible. I remember that we asked Dwight Merriman, who was the CTO of DoubleClick, you know, about it, and he said, it can't be done. And I think for me, a lot of my experience in ad tech was something around the, you know, <laughs> doing things that no one thought could be done. Um, and, and so I think the things I'm most proud of are the moments when we were able not just to do it technically, but also to figure out the right market framework where it made sense for other people to do it. You know, I remember we were, I was at about.com, this is probably in 2005 or six, uh, and we were pitching them this idea of joining our ad exchange. And I think the response was, 
We will never, ever, 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 on any circumstances, ever, ever do programmatic. And that was not an uncommon response. And I think it's kind of wild that, you know, today, like, everything is programmatic. Um, there's not a single website in the world, as far as I know, that hasn't, you know, got something programmatic on it. Um, and so that's it's kind of the fun part, right, is, is seeing an idea that was not, I, I didn't invent the ad exchange. I just invented this hack to allow us to have a real-time auction to help publishers make more money. I, I invented the SSP before I invented the exchange. But okay. the problem with the SSP was none of the ad networks knew how to bid. And so I had to go invent a better ad network ad server to do predictive real-time bidding. You know, And then we realized, well, actually, now we got to go get the buy side to be smarter. And that was the demand side platform. And so a lot of this sort of led, one idea led to the next idea, led to the next idea. You know, DoubleClick had a monopoly on, you know, the ad server business. So we had to find a way to get our bids into DoubleClick since it was closed. So we invented header bidding. Why is it called mm -hmm. header bidding? Because the only thing that ran on the page before DoubleClick was the literal like HTML header. So it's the only place you could put your ad code, thus header bidding. By the way, if it has a terrible or like super dorky name, it's probably my fault. And if it has right. a good name, I have nothing to do with it. So header bidding, right. I can take the blame for that one. Um, but I think that's the, you know. Could you give us, uh, just because this is a history, could yeah. you just help us pin some dates to these inventions? So you said you invented the SSP function prior to the ad exchange. Put a date on uh, the creation of the SSP. If you could just help us, if we're trying to chart things. Yeah, August 2004. Um, okay. It was, right. there were three clients, you know, who I convinced to test it. And it was a terrible failure because the, the ad networks weren't smart enough. And that led to the invention of what we now call the ad exchange, which was the right media, you know, sort of linked ad server that could actually connect all these networks together to bid on each other's inventory. And we launched that. Sort of the first launch was January 05, and it kind of had its first ad exchange transaction, April 1st, 2005. That was the official launch of the ad exchange. I only know that because it was the worst, it was a terrible bug when we went live. And, you know, it was just, it was just one of those horrible days where like nothing worked. You know, all these people were trusting us and uh, it's forever like burned into my mind as like, you know, <laughs> like did I just ruin everything in this business because I can't get this to work? Okay, well, if, what to, so we asked for some dates there uh, to put some color on the history. If you said there was some sort of, you know, spectacular mess ups, you know, you can use whatever language you want. Um, give us an example of one, um, just to try and put some color on that. That was a pretty bad day. Um, <laughs> okay. You know, like nothing really worked. A another one was, you know, with the right media platform, like it was a, a monolithic platform. Like all of our customers used our tech. There was no federation. So you couldn't build your own bidder. You couldn't build your own algorithm. You had to use ours. And so I had this hotshot product manager who I hired named Mike Nolet. And he's famous for, you know, Mike on ads and many other things. Yep. And went on to co-found AppNexus with me. But he started a project to rebuild the predictive algorithm that was the foundation of all of our bidding. Because back in those days, there was a lot of CPC and CPA demand. And you had to convert those into a CPM to make a bidding process work. Because how would you compare a dollar CPC with a dollar CPM? It just depends on the predicted CPC or the predicted click rate. And so Mike spent a year working on a replacement algorithm. Um, mm -hmm. We were doing a bunch of QA work with a firm in the UK and Russia called IP on Web. And so the, mm -hmm. you know, literal like rocket scientist, this guy Boris Muzikonsky, um, and a bunch of crazy smart Russians worked with Mike to come up with, a, with an algorithm that would outperform my version. And to be honest, mine was like very like dumb. It was literally based on naive Bayesian statistics, but it was very consistent. And so I remember in like maybe June or July of 06, we flipped the switch from my dumb algorithm to Mike and Boris's smart algorithm. And uh, every predict every time we'd simulated this, every simulation said it was going to be like shockingly better. 
And uh, we turned it on, and the CEO of Right Media, Mike Walrath, who was one of the best operators I've ever met in my life, like, he had the most amazing spidey sense. Within hours, he came out of his office and said, Brian, it's not working. I'm like, no, 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 we've simulated this a thousand times. It's impossible. Like, it definitely works. He's like, no, I promise it doesn't work. And I'm like, how do you know? Like, how can you even know? There's no statistical way to know. And the next day, we got to the office. He's like, it is not working. And I started to see the numbers coming in, and he was right. Like, performance was just slowly dropping, and it was accelerating. It was getting worse and worse and worse. And it turned out the problem was it learned too fast. And so it was actually over-optimizing on things like frequency and getting really greedy and like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to go buy more and more and more and more. And so it started to actually like eat itself alive is my sort of mental image of it. And so after a couple of days, like we just had to just flip the switch and turn it off. And it was one of those things where I think it made me realize we didn't know what we created. Like we didn't actually know how to simulate this thing, this exchange and how all these interactions, like how everything connected, it kind of took on a life of its own. I remember at AppNexus, many years later, we hired a, a chief economist, like a Stanford professor. And, you know, he spent all this time trying to understand, like people wrote academic papers on ad exchanges and real-time bidding. I mean, we created something that was so complicated that we couldn't even understand it. So that's a, it, was a, it wasn't the most painful mess up, but it was really humbling for me to realize like, and today, like no one really understands this whole ecosystem, um, which is both exciting and terrifying. Yeah, some kind of Skynet vibes uh, you're talking about there, I guess. But uh, I guess at this time, it sounds like, you know, you're coming to predictive behaviors, the, the use of behaviorally targeted advertising, which at, sounds like uh, it was the a period whenever audience was being extracted from context. I mean, audience could be bought just about anywhere if, as long as the algorithms were working right which would somewhat, you know, intuitively undermine the, uh, the, the, the value proposition of premium publishers, a sector of the industry that you've quite um, vocally, um, you know, being an advocate of. Um, and thank you for that as somebody that's uh, every, earned every paycheck I've ever had from, from a publisher. But um, what was the reaction of publishers at that time? You just told us there was, um, I think it was a bot.com said, absolutely not never will we run a programmatic ad. But when you're talking about, say, the news cores of the world, et cetera, et cetera, were you having discussions with them? And what was their reaction? Well, back in those days, you know, in the early 2000s, the mindset was premium, like sell what you can direct, like people have been selling ads for decades, and then anything else you sell remnant, like you throw it over to these ad networks. And so if you think about you know, the biggest ad network at that time, it was advertising.com, which got bought by AOL. And, you know, it was a billion-dollar business. It was really, really powerful. And so, you know, Right Media was an ad network too, but, you know, 30, 40, 50 million dollars. Like, we just didn't matter to any of those players. And our specialty was really performance. Like, we were great at getting, you know, conversions for Vonage or for AOL back when they were shipping CDs around, you know, it was a very performance, mathy business, like very quant. And, you know, publishers, especially high quality premium publishers, wanted to get $10 CPMs, not our buck 50. Um, which is why when MySpace launched and started to get a ton of traction, nobody, no advertiser, knew what to do with a bunch of people like talking about their garage band and like, pasting in pictures of their favorite guitar, um, it was a complete disconnect. And so as an ad network, MySpace was a much better fit for us than these premium publishers because we could drive performance outcomes on MySpace. And, you know, we might get, instead of their average 10 cents, we might get 12 cents. And uh, we also had the technical capacity. I didn't mention, but I'm a computer scientist and my specialty is distributed systems. And back then, computers were so slow compared to today, it was actually really hard to get scale, especially cost-effectively. And so the fact that when MySpace would get a traffic spike, we wouldn't fall over and break the site, you know, they just kept us on and we kept getting more and more traffic. 
The challenge was, how do you actually make real money on MySpace with content that no advertiser wants to buy? And this idea of behavioral advertising, I did not invent. It was around in the late 90s. Um, but the ability to do it on the whole internet had never happened. You could do retargeting on a network, but networks at that time only had a subset of the internet. But with the ad exchange, everybody had access to everything. And so it suddenly made the idea of behavioral targeting a universal way to follow people around. And, and so it actually let us take a user who was on eBay and instead of paying the $10 CPM, we could actually go get them on MySpace for 13 cents. And in fact, the difference was so great that we were getting complaints for from we were getting complaints from advertisers that it was too cheap. They're like, I can't spend my budget. It's so cheap. And so we had to artificially change the algorithm in right media from being second price to being one and a half price. Like if you were willing to pay a buck fifty, we'd charge you like you know, 80 cents. Because from an advertiser's perspective, that was better. The ad serving fees to run your ad server were like two cents. So if you bought all the media for 13 cents CPM, ad serving was like a quarter of your actual expense. So just to, it doesn't make any rational sense, but in sort of the logic that we were hearing, um, we had to increase the price. And of course, MySpace loved this. Like MySpace is going crazy because now their average CPM is going up. Now it's just on certain users. Um, but actually the reason that Right Media got funded was because one of the VCs that had invested in MySpace asked them who they liked. And they said, oh, these Right Media folks are really good. And so Redpoint, the VC firm, called us and said, what are you guys doing? Like MySpace loves what you're doing. And that led to Right Media getting an investment round uh, and actually you know, fueled the growth and expansion of the company. Um, so Ronan, to your question though, like how do I feel about it? At the yeah. time, <laughs> we couldn't get in the door at any premium publisher. We're a scrappy, tiny little company, you know, in the post.com dregs of a broken New York Silicon Alley scene. It wasn't quite like, you know, billboards hanging off their hinges, but it kind of <laughs> felt like it. You know, like put it this way, there wasn't a Starbucks within two blocks of our office. Like you had to actually hike to find a Starbucks. You know, Chipotle was the luxury food in the Flatiron area. Like it was bad. And so we didn't, we weren't thinking like, hey, you know, this retargeting thing is going to destroy premium publishers. Like that would be so arrogant. Like the idea that what we were doing was going to touch the whole internet someday or actually fundamentally change the economics of publishing, like zero chance that we would have believed you. And so, you know, in hindsight, you know, going back to that, we proved the business model that let Facebook work. You know, like Facebook's like, wow, that's really smart. Like let's sell to audiences, not to like <laughs> our news feed. Um, it totally changed the way the internet works. Uh, but we didn't know it at the time. And I think a lot of my stories are like, and we didn't know it at the time because it was the beginning of something that just took off without us being in control of it or necessarily even understanding it. Interesting, interesting. Um, well, at least we know that there are plenty of Starbucks in the uh, Flatiron Silicon Alley district <laughs> now, as uh, many listeners can probably attend to, maybe even in listening into one right by the old Abnexus office um, right. on 23rd Street. Uh, okay, all right. So I think this takes us into the 07 through 2010 era. Um, many people I've spoken to said that this is arguably probably the most seismic period of time where things got, competition got pretty intense. Obviously, this was a period when you left Right Media uh, in and around the uh, Yahoo purchase of Right Media in 2007. Um, you went from there to form co-found Abnexus uh, with the aforementioned Mike Nola, who was your CTO, I believe. Yep. Yeah, and this was an era whenever Microsoft picked up ADCN. Um, a lot of people, well, some people might know this, but that was Jeff Green's at ECN during that era, a, a name who many listeners uh, might know now as the CEO of the Trade Desk. And then, of course, we have Google really comes into the fray with the 
2007 purchase of uh, DoubleClick for $3.1 billion. Uh, and then just to jump a little bit further in history, it then went on to buy uh, Invite Media for $81 million. That takes us up to 2010. And then a little bit further, uh, we've got the purchase of AdMeld by Google, which was in 2011 for $400 million. So we can really see at that time, Google was moving beyond search to putting the full ad stack together. But of course, this is an era whenever you are founding AppNexus, uh, which was, okay, so I've heard that this was something you formed and then you started to really, um, really, uh, what's the word, man up, I guess, in terms of uh, headcount after the non-compete with uh, Yahoo slash Ripe Media was formed. Um, uh, yeah, just wondering if you can tell us about the early days of AppNexus. Is it true that you wanted to become a, a cloud infrastructure player and then later pivoted? Could you just sort of clarify those uh, versions of history that people talk about whenever they're by the water coolers or in the bars talking about ad tech? Yeah, so coming off of the right media sale, uh, I had seen this incredible explosion of compute power to transact in this exchange environment. Um, you know, we had, <laughs> I remember like running down to Chinatown to our data center and our bare feet trying to fix a cord that someone tripped over and basically took out the internet, you know? So um, it had spent a lot of time in data centers and cloud computing was really just on the beginning at that point. Like Amazon Web Services was really jankety. There were a couple of other smaller players, but like, the idea that the whole world was going to move to the cloud was kind of obvious to me in the sense that at Right Media, we kind of built our own server management infrastructure. And I was just thinking through it like, well, if everyone's going to build their own algorithms, they're going to need to be physically close to where the transactions take place. We're going to need a nexus point between the buyer's application and the seller's application. This is going to be the nexus. So that was app nexus. And we weren't just going to build it for advertising. We thought that if you had a data center where these transactions happened, there were three use cases. One was advertising. One was healthcare because of HIPAA concerns where, you know, secure data exchange would have to happen mm -hmm. in, a, in a secure way. And then um, I was, and still am, like sort of amazed at like the high frequency trading stuff that happens in Wall Street and just watching the explosion of these, you know, high-frequency electronic trading networks, I was like, that would be a perfect fit for these clouds because people need to flex their capacity. And so when Mike and I started the company, that's why it's called AppNexus and not AdNexus, is that we thought there were multiple cases where secure, high-performance clouds would win. And so in August of 2007, or September, um, I flew out to Silicon Valley to meet with a guy named Ron Conway, who was the godfather of angel investing in the Valley, um, to tell him my idea. I'd met him at a cocktail party or something, a picnic, I think. And uh, he's like, oh, you know who you should talk to? He's like, you should talk to Mark Andreessen because he did LoudCloud during the you know, dot-com crash, and it was a total disaster. He's going to tell you why this is the dumbest idea you've ever had. He's like, I'll get you in there, but you need to wear a helmet because it's going to be that kind of meeting. Now, Mark Andreessen was like my childhood hero. I learned to program web applications reading the CGI bin documentation from Netscape when I was in high school. And so I'm like, okay, this is going to be amazing. So he gets me an appointment the next day. So I drive down 101. I go to Opsware, which is they spun LoudCloud into Opsware. <laughs> the meeting is at the Ron Conway Enterprise Conference Center. Like, it's named for Ron Conway because he has been so influential in this company. And I sit down, it's not just Mark, it's his, you know, co-founder, you know, sort of partner in crime, Ben Horowitz. And then there's a guy, there's a random VC there who was just like sitting in on the meeting. And I, I sort of explain my idea and they start giving me like the most amazing graduate level course in how to run cloud infrastructure, which by the way, in 2007, no one in the world knew, like except for them, and had seen it firsthand. And they gave me mm -hmm. probably a hundred reasons this was never going to work. And it boiled down to that K 
CapEx, like the ability to buy hardware. Like Amazon could call Dell and buy, you know, $10 million worth of servers every day and get 50% discounts. But if I called Dell, I couldn't afford it. I would never get that kind of discounts. My balance sheet would never be able to support the amount of hardware and that this was going to fail if you just tried to compete on pure infrastructure. And obviously, looking at the cloud market today, it's Google versus Microsoft versus Amazon. The odds that an independent player could compete just on cost of capital are zero. So they were totally right. And so after about 45 minutes, I'm like, okay, guys, I get it. You hate my idea. You're, you know, I'll leave you alone. And Mark's like, no, 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 we want to invest. I'm like, why would you want to invest? That's the <laughs> craziest thing I've ever heard. You just told me why. He's like, no, no, no. He's like, the fact that you're able to have this kind of dialogue about this, like, you know, like we want to invest in you. I don't think this is the idea you're going to end up with, but we want to be part of it. And it was like one of the most amazing moments of my life. And so I got back on the airplane <laughs> to the office with a term sheet in hand from not just Mark and Ben as angels, but from Kozla Ventures, one of the most legendary firms in the Valley, to build this company um, with this basic prediction that we were going to have to pivot. I, I still can't really believe it happened. And uh, so fast forwarding, um, by about April of 2008, we've signed every one of these, almost every one of these next generation ad tech companies on this vision of programmatic advertising. Invite Media was effectively started in my apartment, you know, obviously a customer. Um, Open Ads became OpenX, customer, AdMeld, customer, you know, just go through the list of all of these companies, MediaMath, you know, all these businesses were building around our cloud because we had this high-performance real-time infrastructure that nobody else did. But we were going to run out of money because even though we were mm -hmm. making millions of dollars on an annualized basis selling servers profitably, where was I going to get another 10 or 20 or $30 million of capital to keep up with demand? When I went to Goldman Sachs, they said, oh, we're in. We love this. We need 50,000 servers. And I was like, uh, what? Like, that's like $500 million worth of capital. Like, I have $2 million. I can't do that. And they're like, well, can't work with you. Healthcare, you know how long it takes to get HIPAA certified? Like, the only market we had was ads. And the only way to play was to move up the stack to do more than just compute, especially because Amazon was coming in yeah. big time at this time. So a long way of right. saying, we really didn't have a lot of options, especially because guess what happened in 2008? The whole Crush. world fell apart. You had a financial yeah. crisis. And there's no way you're going to go get capital in a market that might literally run out of money. And so the only door open like, was either sell the company or pivot. And after 40-something VC meetings in the summer of 2008, I just gave up. And I was like, I'm going to sell this thing. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more from Brian O'Kelly. Okay, so you, you mentioned, uh, but you mentioned you had big names, you know, that, that were backing you. I mean, Mark Andreessen, Ben Horowitz. Um, how come it, so was it just that the fundraising capabilities was so hard at this time after the crash? Because I'd have thought that quite intuitively, investors would move, you know, very much a herd mentality. I thought that's how markets would work. Well, I mean, I'll give you an example. So I went to Redpoint Ventures, who mm -hmm. had made $200 million in 18 months or two years on the sale of Right Media to Yahoo. Okay, I'd made them $200 million. And I went in there and I sat with the partner who had just made all this money. And I said, I'm doing this thing. It's going great. I'm going to pivot back into the world that I am literally the world expert on. I'd like you to invest. He said, I don't know. He's like, I really see you more as a CTO. I don't, I don't think you're really the CEO type. And I was like, wow. ouch. Okay. So the definition of a tough crowd. Okay. All right. But yeah. but it was it was this constant battle. Cause when you see me today, you're like, oh wow, you know, he's debonair. He's such he's so sophisticated. He obviously knows what he's doing. Um if that's what I think. Um but back then I was just a 30-year-old kid who had been a, a CTO of a company that most people hadn't heard of. And you know, I didn't have the credibility of, even programmatic hadn't, the name programmatic hadn't been invented yet. The ad exchange 
was to a very small subset of people, a big deal. And there was this huge gold rush happening in ad tech in 2007 because of a quantive and double click and everything else. But mm. I was an unknown. And part of the problem with the way right media was sold was because I got fired the day before the acquisition, I was written out of a lot of the sort of accolades around the right media deal. And so, you know, that was a really painful process for me because, you know, you hear about the Goodhart, you'd hear about Mike Walrath, but you'd never hear about me. And so I was really starting from scratch. And I was uh -huh. deeply hurt by that on an emotional level, but I also had a chip on my shoulder because I really wanted to show people not just that I could build technology, but that I could actually run a company and build an organization and do these things. So that whole summer was just, I felt pretty desperate. Like we had built this amazing thing. I knew we could go do it. And there was a new arms race starting, which was the race for real-time mm. bidding. So Microsoft, Google, and Yahoo were all devoting huge resources to build the first bidder. This is something I had invented and played with at Right Media. We had one bidder, basically, we'd built with a, with a startup, but it didn't work at scale. And so in the summer of, you know, 2008, like, I know it's happening. All I want to do is start. So you're right that on July 18th, my non-compete expired. I sent offer mm -hmm. letters to my entire product and engineering leadership team from Right Media to quit Yahoo and come work for me. And I went to 40 different VC meetings trying to fund this thing. No one had any idea what RTV was, what the ad exchange was, you know, none of it. I was like sending them links to Mike on ads, like, go read this, you'll understand it. And uh, finally, the Vanderhoek brothers, you know, Tim and Chris from Specific Media were like, look, we'll just buy your company for $30 million. Okay. I mean, now a Viant, by the way, just in case there's anybody oh, yeah. that doesn't have the feet in the path, the publicly listed Viant. Sorry, just had to contemporize information a bit more. Yeah. Well, now they own MySpace too. So, you know, you can contemporize it or not. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, they're like, look, you know, you're great. We'll buy you. So, I mean, it was for a business that we started literally a year before, that's not a bad exit. It's not what I was trying mm. to do, but like I owned, I don't know, like more than half the business. Like it would have been a decent exit in that sense. Um, but I just made one last trip to Boston. I got in the airplane. I, I didn't even dress up. I was just like, whatever. And I went to this firm called Vinrock and met this guy named Mike Terrell. And I was like, look, I know I'm going to, I could do this. Like I could totally build this company. I have everything I need. I just can't get anyone to take me seriously. I'm just going to sell this thing for 30 million. He's like, I want to invest. I'm like, I clearly think you're messing with me. He's like, no, no. He's like, I was involved in DoubleClick. I actually sold the browser to Microsoft that became Internet Explorer. He's like, this is exactly the kind of business I want to invest in. He's like, you're the kind of person who is so angry and pissed off that you might just pull it off. He's like, I'm in. And that became like the spark that let us build AppNexus. And within a okay. month, I pivoted the company completely. And we started the world's most crazy sprint to build real-time bidding before Google, Microsoft, or Yahoo. And in late December, um, we basically had it working. Now, one thing you might not know is that we didn't have any inventory access because to bid, you'd have to have something to bid on. And so where did we put the code to, to, to like let us bid? And so on MikeOnAds.com, <laughs> you know, we installed GAM, the, the crappy pre-double-click integration version, and we put mm -hmm. our little JavaScript that would auction every single impression. And at a conference, I'd met eBay's head of marketing, and I convinced him to build a bidder. Um, we built an open-source bidder framework. We had them install an algorithm into it. And so eBay bought the very first real-time bidded ad on Mike on Ads in December of 2008. So it's not quite as cool as AT&T and Hotwired, but the fact that we beat them to market with one of the biggest, most sophisticated marketers was incredible, you know? And so you just look at the series of crazy events that got to that point. Um, but that's that's where header bidding came from. We had to have something to bid on. Yeah, it's funny. You mentioned there that uh, with the birth of programmatic, you just had to keep inventing new things to almost create new markets. That you invented this, okay, now we got to go invent that, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, a lot of your customers were 
you know, names that um, that that ad tech people would know. You mentioned Invite Media, the company that would eventually become what is now OpenX. There are many others. What was the reaction to that? Because surely are you then not kind of competing with your own customers? It seems like that Spider-Man meme, there's sort of like frenemies all around. What was the atmosphere about that? Or was it just out and out land grab with little bits of confusion thrown in? Oh, it was chaos. I mean, because again, there's there's venture money pouring in all of a sudden because of, mm-hmm. you know, venture capitalists didn't get the difference between gross and net. And so these companies would look really, really big, really, really fast, like rocket fuel. You know, on a gross basis, you could make a lot of money. You get access to a lot of inventory very quickly. You know, it, it everything just looked like a rocket ship. And so the venture money came in. Yeah, our customers were like, what are you doing? You know, you're supposed to be our cloud layer. And I said, well, mm. that's great, but I'm also supposed to survive. And so, yeah, so we were immediately in conflict with all the SSP businesses. So AdMeld and um, Rubicon Project and Pubmatic. Uh, and so that was tense. However, we were only on the sell side. So we still were able to work very closely with Invite Media, very closely with MediaMath, you know, sort of the, the buy side. And so, but, but this basically begat this four or five year cycle where just everything went crazy. That's when the Lumascape, you know, the famous... Terry Kawaja Lumascape was invented for the first time because we were all trying to figure it out. You had Omar Tawakal starting, you know, the first DMP uh, in Blue Kai, and then a lot Ephraim did Exalate. And then looking around this Lumascape as people start inventing businesses around this rapidly changing ecosystem, it was pretty cool. And, you know, Ad Exchanger, the blog at that point, you know, was invented like to almost chronicle this. And, and you have, I think it was one of those like creative moments in history where everything was changing so fast that you could barely keep up with what was happening. And of course, I had the privilege or, you know, <laughs> the challenge of being right in the middle of all of it. Yeah. Um, it was during this time that, as I mentioned beforehand, that um, Google came in, was really competing fast, the stable of uh, acquisitions that it put together. But it seemed at that time that um, AppNexus seemed to be uh, the, the kernel of a counter-stable. And um, just a bit of personal history of uh, Seb and I, this is round about the time that we both started reporting on this um, uh, industry and all these developments. Seb, I don't know if you want to just sort of, what were some of your observations of this time and how these dynamics were starting to play out? I think just taking a step back, um, the interesting thing for me listening to Brian is like, what was the real revenue crank for AppNexus, right? Obviously, you know, you sort of started working with with kind of eBay and that was a pretty transformational sort of moment for the business. But, you know, without a lot of scale and a lot of demand, like it's very tricky to sort of take AppNexus from kind of here to there. So it was that moment when Microsoft sort of joined, I think, when was that, 2012? Yeah, you're right that we were not going to make a lot of money monetizing Micron ads. Um, And we were able to get some more publishers to do header bidding, but it was a challenge. And we were not on good terms with Yahoo because they saw us as competing with right media. And I remember in like July of 2009, Google had integrated DoubleClick and was going to launch AdX 2.0, basically. And they were having this big summit at the Google headquarters, you know, free food, and were inviting all the programmatic players. And we, in parallel, had been talking to Michael Rubenstein, who was the general manager of AdX, to come join AppNexus. And so two days before this massive summit, he had to call me and uninvite me, his soon-to-be, you know, boss slash business partner in about a week. And uh, our problem was not just that we were small scale. We were at war with Google and Yahoo, the two biggest internet companies in the world. And back then, Yahoo was big, 
You know, in 2007, it was the biggest internet company, bigger than Google. And we were at war with everyone. A, a friend of mine, Patrick McCarthy, was still at Yahoo after the acquisition of Right Media. And he was in a senior leadership meeting. I forget which CEO this was, but the, you know, current CEO. And there was a strategic meeting about Yahoo's biggest threats in the whole market. And it was Microsoft, Google, AOL, and AppNexus. AppNexus at that point, I think we had 18 people. And so the target on our back was insane. And so you're right to ask that question because we were just scrapping anywhere we could. Like we were finding, you know, buy-side deals, sell-side deals. Like we had to build a DSP actually because eBay couldn't get their algorithms to work. Like, so we had to actually build the bidder for them using their own data. It was crazy. We had like eBay's entire transactional like history for every one of their users in our database so that we could mine it and spit back out effectively custom algorithms for that. And we outperformed them massively because thanks to Mike's experience at Right Media, messing up our algorithm and then fixing it, he probably knew more than anyone in the world about how to build algorithms for performance marketers. And so it was our secret sauce. And, you know, we got some scale with eBay and then we were able to be on AdX, which was nice. And then our sort of sell-side business was able to actually work with some of the emerging players like Invite and MediaMath. But, you know, here comes Google acquiring people. So all of our partners start getting acquired. And so we, we realized that the only way we could make this work was to have some strategic anchor. So I actually flew out to California. I met with Ben Horowitz and I said, Ben, what do I do? Like I'm, we're fighting in this like land grab and I'm fighting against Yahoo and I'm fighting against Google. I think I might be fighting against Microsoft and AOL, but they don't hate me yet. Um, well, what do I do? He said, oh, it's no problem. Just get a strategic partnership with either Microsoft or AOL. I'm like, okay, Ben, but like how? He's like, oh, well, just do deals with both of them. And, you know, once you have a deal with AOL, then Microsoft will do a deal. But, you know, if you don't have a deal with AOL, Microsoft won't do a deal. I'm like, okay, but how do I get AOL to do a deal? He's like, oh, I don't know. I'm like, thanks, Ben. Like, super glad I flew out here for this. And on the way back, I was like, actually? And so I figured out how to get to Tim Armstrong, who was the CEO of AOL. And I sat in this big, beautiful table at the AOL office. And I tried to convince Tim why he should buy AppNexus. And the conversation went something like this. Okay, Brian, uh, how does this help me sell more to agencies? I'm like, it it doesn't. That's not the point of programmatic. The point of programmatic is it like just makes you money algorithmically. He's like, okay, but like try to put this in terms that I could put in a deck for an agency. like, (laughs) Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm not kidding. But his whole team was so excited about it that I was able to convince them to put an, a term sheet on the table to buy us for $100 million exactly. Because he was, I mean, it was in bad shape. He was only able to do acquisitions up to $100 million. And I got in an airplane and I flew to Microsoft, who I'd been negotiating with for months. And I put it in front of their head of corp dev, Dave O'Hara, and said, Dave, I have a hot term sheet and I need you to counter. He goes, okay. And for like (laughs) seven days, I think I was on the phone with lawyers and Microsoft, like nonstop to get this deal done where not just would they invest, but they would put all of their like non-premium, like their remnant inventory on our platform. And what's crazy is, you know who our deal sponsors were? Aaron Easterly, who is the CEO of Rover.com, public company CEO now, it was Jeff Green, was our huge advocate. Jeff apparently has gone on to do good things. I've gotten out of touch a little bit, but I'll I'll check him out. Um, There's a guy named Satya Nadella, who was the technical sponsor. He was not the CEO of Microsoft. He was like a senior engineering leader who had to sign off on this. I mean, can you believe like the level? And then Chi Lu ran all of being in search. Like he was the guy, you know, who ran the whole thing. And they were seeing Google starting to become kind of dominant in not just search, but also spilling over into other areas. They're trying to make Bing work and they couldn't afford to lose the entire digital advertising space. And their concept was basically like, maybe this guy's crazy enough 
to actually counter Google. Um, and I will say that fast forwarding 10 years, Google kicked our butt left and right. We did not knock Google off of its perch as the most important company in this space, but we gave them a good run. Um, it was a tough fight and you know we, we emerged bloodying them here and there. And so I think it was a good strategic move by Microsoft, especially because then they could focus their energies elsewhere. Um, but for us, it meant that everyone had to work with us. All of this, you know, incredible competition. Well, sorry, Google, you got to work with us if you want Microsoft's inventory. Yahoo, you got to work with us. We got to do a deal to open up inventory to each other if you want to work together. And so that moment was went from us being in the fray to being out of the fray and actually in the pole position to define the next five years. And to your point, it didn't unlock revenue directly because it was mm. a very favorable deal for Microsoft. But because everyone then had to work with us and we had the credibility and heft, we then built an incredibly scaled business very quickly around the Microsoft relationship. Build on that then, right? Because you go on to that kind of capitalization period over kind of six rounds throughout Nexus. Like, what were some of the milestones there? And I guess more importantly, what did you learn throughout that kind of whole process, right? Like, how did you decide when the time was right to kind of raise capital and who would be the right partners for the business and so Yeah, it's a long set of answers, but I think... Sorry, bro. <laughs> no, I mean, we need another <laughs> podcast. But I think the <laughs> most important recognition was that our balance sheet was a strategic, like a, a sales advantage. Like if you were going to say, who do I want to work with? Working with the best funded company that has a deep partnership with Microsoft is hard not to feel good about. And other corporates, you know, News Corp, Yahoo Japan, Deutsche Telekom wanted to be on board as well. And so we got these corporates aligned. Uh, and our business was just going crazy from a revenue perspective. Like the, the numbers were amazing. We did one, five, our first couple years, million of revenue. And then we did 25, 75, 125, 175. I mean, insane. And the company went from like 18 people. We did the Microsoft deal, we were 50. And three years later, we were close to 1,000. So talk about, <laughs> I, I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like the lessons learned through that process would fill a book of people, like what does it mean to hire leaders who can keep up with that kind of hyper growth? I'd never been a CEO before. Remember, I I'd just been a CTO. Like now I'm supposed to hire a CFO. I'm supposed to manage a global team. Like what does that mean culturally? You know, how do I walk around the office? Like I don't have like the, the, the foundational people skills or the knowledge of organizations. And thank God for Michael Rubenstein, who'd seen all of this at DoubleClick and at, at Google. Thank God for Ben and Mark and, you know, David Rosenblatt was an incredible advisor. You know, he was the CEO of DoubleClick at the time of the sale. Um, people like Dwight Porter. I, I just had amazing advisors who helped. Um, but it was still a crazy ride. And I think what's been interesting for me doing this again at Scope 3 is that even knowing what I know, even with all those lessons, it's <laughs> hypergrowth is still a crazy roller coaster. Like it is incredibly intense to get a group of people together to do something really important and really big, um, especially in this industry when things can happen so fast, so globally, uh, and so definitively. So um, maybe I'm still processing what I learned uh, and trying not to, <laughs> well, to learn different ones this time around. Were there any deals that in hindsight you sort of regret or wish had sort of panned out differently. I know everyone sort of points to the WPP one, but obviously, again, you look at News Corp, that one took a minute, right, to sort of really play out. They eventually became a great partner, but, you know, they didn't migrate until over to AppNexus until after the AT&T sale, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think the WPP relationship was very complicated because they had a lot of leverage as the largest holding company. And... I think we played that very poorly on the AppNexus side. Um, the negotiation was basically, if you don't do a deal with us, we're going to pull all of our spend. And, and a partnership is not a partnership when one side 
puts a gun to the other side's head. And, you know, because not just did they do the deal, they bragged about it constantly. You know, Sir Martin would not stop talking about it. We lost the ability to work with Publicis and Omnicom. And you can't be a market leader without working with all the holding companies. And, you know, it's really sad because we didn't want to do the WPP deal. We had to do it, you know? And I, I still don't know what I could have done differently because I couldn't afford to lose our biggest buy side client. And I couldn't afford to do a deal with WPP. Um, I think the thing I didn't realize was when WPP did the deal, their own clients didn't trust that they were selecting us for the right reasons. So not only did we lose Publicis and Omnicom business, we lost WPP business. And you know, if you ever want to kill a company, and this is, I understand this is a new management team and they don't operate this way, but in that time, a relationship with WPP was like having a stigma on your forehead or your shirt that said, you know, don't work with this company. Um, it was awful. And actually, Sir Martin apologized to me on his way out of WPP. He said, I don't think we, said, I don't think we treated you very well. well. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, like, I agree. And then he said, do you want to be on the board of S4? And I was like, no. Like, I don't think those two statements connect. Like, like I'm a glutton for punishment, but no, thank you. Um, and he's actually a lovely guy. I don't think he was like a bad person. I just think that from a business perspective, like he plays rough. And I feel like yeah. we got tossed around in that in a way that I just wasn't ready for. I didn't realize that's like how it's played at that level. And uh, now I do. We're getting sort of notified that we're getting close to time. So let's move things on a little bit. We're, we're kind of at that point where, you know, you've raked in a ton of cash, you've made some st savvy strategic kind of buys and things are humming along Then bam, right? Growth hits a bit of a speed bump because you've reached that point where uh, the law of big numbers kind of kick in. And I guess that provides almost a backdrop for how the AT&T sort of deal comes out, right? Because you're thinking you probably got two choices. You go down the IPO route or you sort of attempt to sort of, you've got to find a way to, to fund that next phase of growth. Um, just kind of frame that for us a little bit, bit more because I find that point in this tale really sort of fascinating, the sort of the permutations that you and the team are sort of having to kind of um, kind of game plan out at that moment. Yeah, well, one thing to remember is that we were spending about $100 million a year on R&D. So we were investing every penny we made back into innovation. And, you know, that does not look great from a public company perspective because we were competing with Google and the only way to win was to out-innovate them. You know, our video platform, which is now what Netflix is using, um, we started investing in in 2013, and we spent tens of millions of dollars to build that because we thought that was a strategic opportunity around Google. And it, I think it has been clear that Google's not winning in the, you know, streaming platform, like tech tech area. Um, so we made some really smart bets, but they were really slow bets. Like that bet wasn't going to pay out, and it took years, even now, for that to become a, a scale a scaled business. And so. You know, we, we filed our S1, we hired bankers, we had Goldman and JP Morgan, the best bankers. You know, we we were through comments. And at the same time, we were talking to strategics about buying us. And I had my heart set on Microsoft buying the company. I, I adore Brad Smith and Sacha and Dave and the whole team. Like ethically, we're aligned. The way they think about advertising is aligned. I just, I wanted to work at Microsoft. If I had to go work for somebody, like that was the team I thought was the right home. Um, but they had just bought LinkedIn and they weren't ready. Like it wasn't the right time for them. And so we had this like deadline pressure from the IPO. And so the best offer we had was from AT&T and Brian Lesser, you know, had done the WPP deal with us. Uh, I knew him incredibly well. He was on our board for a while. And I also knew I could not work for Brian Lesser. And so we had sushi and probably... May or June of 27, uh, 2018, right before the deal was done, he said, I want you to be my CTO. And I said, no, I will not do it. 
in fact, we have an amazing CTO who is still the CTO of, you know, Microsoft's, you know, Xander, whatever it is now. He's amazing. I was like, why would you want me? Like, he's better than I am. He's like, well, what would you do if we bought you? And I was like, I'd leave. You know, you don't need another CEO. You can do what you want, but like, I'm not staying to work for you, you know? And I, I, mean, I had some pretty bad feelings after the WPP deal. And, uh, you know, it was a really, really hard choice for the team because we didn't have a lot of faith that AT&T was going to pull off the whole Warner plus DirecTV plus AppNexus thing. Um, and I don't know. I just felt like giving up. Like we'd failed. We did not win against Google. We did not transform the space the way we wanted to. And yet, think about the thousand people depending on me to have a financial outcome so they could put their kids through college or, you know, put a down payment on a house. And the amount of retention that team has gotten over the years is hundreds of millions. Like I, I change people's lives, but I failed. And financially for me, it was a great outcome. It took me years to actually recover from the feeling that I failed. And uh, I still carried around every day, the sense of like I had work undone. And so I think it led me to scope three in a lot of ways of like, I have unfinished business here. I'm not gonna build the same thing. Like I am not building ad tech again. I am done with it. It's not what excites me. But the idea of having a global impact of changing the way we monetize the, the internet, the way we help premium publishers, you know, do their incredibly important work, the way we help advertisers actually fuel the global economy in sustainable ways. Like, I haven't stopped being obsessed with the way the internet works from a monetization and advertising perspective since really 1999. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate your history walkthrough because it actually reminds me how passionate I have always been to do the work that I'm doing to try to make this whole ecosystem work better. Um, I was just wondering if I could butt in here a little bit. Brian, you mentioned your current venture, Scope 3, and um, you just got 20 million in funding. Interestingly, um, primarily that round was primarily led by um, Google Ventures. Um, I got knowing what I know about uh, the historic competition between uh, AppNexus and Google just got a little bit of a kick that they were uh, funding your your current ventures. I know there's probably an element of uh, differentiation between the two, but uh, I guess that's my long way of saying, do you think the current way the industry is going um, is something that is, is one that's compatible with the, your vision for scope three and the decarbonization of the industry? And when I say the current way the industry is going, I mean, the trend towards uh, privacy, so cookies being withdrawn from sunsetted, um, the current trend towards uh, supply path optimization, where we have less players trading with each other and just buying basically our time, et cetera, et cetera. You know, an industry that you helped create in, in many ways. Just look to get your take on that since we're going to round out the circle here. Yeah, I think that just zooming out, like, our current global economy is not particularly compatible with where we need to be from a sustainability perspective. And I, I agree with your privacy lens. I think AI is coming on strong. I, I think the reality is that the world changes really, really fast in a lot of ways. If you think about even the fact that when I started AppNexus, there were no smartphones. Facebook didn't exist. Twitter didn't exist, right? I mean, think about that. That's a massive change, a fundamental change <laughs> And like the physical life of every person in this country with a smartphone in their pocket. I don't think we can predict what the world will look like in 10 years. I can promise you that the programmatic ecosystem is not going to drive that change. It's going to respond to that change. And so for me, a lot of the time I spend is not thinking about how this ecosystem works. It's what's around it. It's the $3 trillion marketing ecosystem. It's how the $900 billion advertising ecosystem works in a world where search is potentially going to fundamentally change with AI. A world where you know, we are increasingly disconnected from the web that I grew up with and living in a world that, that will be different. So we will have to adapt as, an, as a technology ecosystem to those changes. And we just have to remember that it's those changes that drive us not the other way around, even though 
for me, I'd love to tell you that I changed the world. I think it's more realistic to say that we continuously adapt and innovate around where the world's going. And that's the most exciting thing about this is we have no idea what the next decade's going to look like. As fascinating as this has been, really, I could literally talk for a lot longer. But on behalf of both Seb, myself, and everybody here at Digiday, Brian, thank you so much for you, um, your time. It's been super fascinating, super illuminating. And um, I wouldn't be so hard on myself when you say that you failed over the last 20 or so years. Uh, that's just my personal assessment. But look, thank you once again. Thank you so much for listening to Digiday's History of AdTech, a special four-part series from the Digiday podcast. Come back on Monday, December the 11th for part two of our series, where we'll be talking to Ari Paparo about the 2000s. If you want to know even more about this disruption in the digital media space, visit digiday.com to read our oral history of AdTech. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe if you haven't already, because every Tuesday we have our regular scheduled Digiday podcast hosted by Kelly Barber and Kamika McCoy. Thank you again for listening and goodbye.